Welcome to the Agile for Agilist podcast. My name is Drew Podwall. I'm joined today by my co-host, Brad Nelson. Hey, Brad. Hey, Drew. Hello, Agilist. And also with us today is Sean Bradley. How you doing, Sean? I'm good, Drew. How are you? Good, good. So I'm excited for this episode today. Uh, first, let me introduce uh, Sean a bit. Um, Sean is a wonderful Agilist. I've come to know him over the past maybe like three or four months now, is it, Sean? Mm. Yeah, maybe a bit longer. Yeah, we met in the Agile for our Agile Mastery uh, community group that's run by Adam Weisbart. Um, it's a great group, lots of awesome activities, and uh, have collaborated in the Lean Coffee and, and open spaces several times. But, um, you know, the cool thing about about you, Sean, that I really am intrigued about and interested in learning more is that you have a big background in uh, uh, systems development, that you worked for 14 years for a domestic ferry company, right? Which is like, uh, you know, I, I've worked for HBO, I've worked for AMC, I worked for Nickelodeon, like I've worked for media companies, I get that kind of thing. But, you know, yeah. I'm curious to know what technology is like at a ferry company, you know? And, um, I know that your background is big with with database management and wrangling the data, so I'm curious to know how that comes into like what what are what's the what are the data points for ferries and things like that, you know? <laughs> and then also, you know, your your agile journey. Everybody has a great agile story and a great agile journey. So, let's let's dive in there, right? Let's start at 2008 where you said that you uh recreated parts of Scrum by accident. Okay. So like I mean, I, I guess the the tech journey in that company i was working with them on the commercial side of things actually originally um but around 2006 they had this big refresh program that caused them to want to look at their data in a more open way and get people who were kind of savvy around these things to look after their databases build big etl uh do a lot of the lifting and shifting of data amongst their systems they were integrators um and so that's how i kind of came into into that side of things but the the agile journey started yeah about 2008 um when we i was setting up a, a kind of development department so originally i'd been this guy who was with all these people doing it operations as we might might have called it at the time um and i was sort of the one guy that was doing a bit of development on the side and trying to learn the the way to do those things well but I was able to start building up a, a larger department then of of folk to help me do it. Um, the chief executive decided we were going to have a, a data warehouse, so off we went to go and start building one and doing all the, the front-end BI stuff, all of the, the lifting and shifting of data too. And as we built out this, this department of folks, we were just organizing our work pretty casually to start with putting a, a big A3, um, I don't know what that is in US sizes, but a, a fair size kind of piece of paper up on a up on a wall every two weeks with our priorities listed as agreed with a bunch of stakeholders that sat around the boardroom table arguing it out every two weeks. We had no clue that this was very much like something that somebody had described to do. Um, and with it, I, I suppose kind of looking up how we could work, actually, I think looking out software that we could use to help support it, because this Excel spreadsheet printed on a piece of paper was getting a bit, was wearing a bit thin. It was with that that we started to discover Scrum, really. I think it was an article by Ken Schwaber originally that, that I kind of came across and thought, kind of sounds like the sort of thing that we're doing. Um, and with that then came all the other good stuff, the really good stuff, the powerful stuff. 
the retrospecting, the the keeping in mind the idea of inspecting and adapting, rather than yeah, just kind of going through the motions as we were. But the mechanics, it, part of the mechanics, were there with us. But yeah, that's that's kind of what I mean when I tell people that I've we happened upon it accidentally. Um, I'm not sure that we happened upon all of it accidentally. Otherwise, I'd love to take credit for all that Scrum is, and I can't. Yeah. But it was kind of weird how we started working in this really similar way that then, you know, we could um, we could expand it. We could expand into this known way of doing things that's that's you know helping software developers and more product developers all over the world. And that's really interesting because you hear that a lot. I think from people who've been in the industry for a minute, you know, they're like, oh, I was doing agile before there was agile, right? Or, or I hear a lot of times like, oh, it was just common sense, which is a common sense development. Yeah. You know, tangential to that, I have ADHD. I have major ADHD. I'm, I'm bananas at times, but I was diagnosed with ADHD in third grade. And by like middle school, I was, you know, just a terrible student. And uh, my parents were sending me to tutors. And then, one of the learning specials, specialists at school decided um, maybe Drew doesn't need tutors. Maybe Drew needs a a learning specialist type tutor, right? And so I remember going to this guy's office um, in middle school, like once a week after school, and all we did was we talked about systems that I could put into place to manage my life and manage my work, like creating calendars, creating task lists, um, coming up with ways to determine, you know, whether something's important or not. Um, uh, Pomodoro. I don't know if you guys, do you guys know what Pomodoro yeah. is? Yeah. 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 Uh, for people who don't know what Pomodoro is, the, the basic part of Pomodoro is, is um, you set a timer for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. I forget what the, the actual number is, but, um, and you commit to doing work for that period of time. And if your brain is wandering still at the end of that time period, then set the timer for another 10 minutes and take a 10 minute break. And then that timer will bring you back. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of like experiments that, you know, people have done on their own and realized like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm kind of doing scrum. So, mm. but, um, you know, I'm curious, right? Like, so in this process of, of like, I, and I'm going to call you the Columbus, Christopher Columbus of Agile, discover, <laughs> discovering Agile, um, discovering Scrum. Um, Without the bad stuff, right? Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> all right, I'm going to call you that once and that was it. And I'll never call you that again. <laughs> but in, in, in starting to experiment in that way, like what, were, like what were some of the things that worked well? What were the things that didn't work well? Right? What were some of the things that you tried? um, that, you know, helped you guys to move along, like mindset, even like culture process. Do you remember much of that? Yeah. It's a long way to cast your mind back, but yeah, I think, I think what's always sort of run as a thread through, through us, you know, doing it ourselves, discovering it ourselves, becoming scrum developers, scrum masters, product owners. It, it was, it was the power of the inspect and adapt loop. And I don't think it was obvious from, from the get-go, but I think we were pretty committed to the idea, the theory of it, and seeing what we could do. So we weren't one of those teams that sent, that then said, well, nah, let's not do that. It's too hard to introspect. It's, it's you know, there's too much to do. So I think that early on was a, a revelation. It's always, in my experience anyway, a, a, a revelation for teams to discover actually that when they skip that bit, they get not far. Um, 
because it's the only way we can improve, right? So, so there was that. But actually, what was easy, of course, was was the mechanical side of it, where we were setting priorities every couple of weeks. Because I think initially, we, we, you know, learning about sprints and whatnot, we we would have decided just to go with two week sprints because they fit. Um, and we tried, you know, more aggressive uh, patterns in the, uh, you know, further on as well. We we're doing things in one week patterns too. But it's pretty chunky work, so it's hard to do so quick um, with few people initially. So I suppose, yeah, the learning was all about the essence of Inspect and Adapt. Was it cultural for us at the time? I think that's something I've learned over the years personally and and more than ever in the last few. You know, I, it's lovely that there's always something more to get into, more to appreciate about what we do. Uh, for me... The coaching side and, and truly, truly the coaching side of what we do in the last couple of years has become really lit up and really a big part of how I want to approach what I do. Um, whereas back then, of course, you know, we like any other team starting out, we're just kind of applying the mechanics and hoping for the best. Um, at the time, though, there is a funny thing. And I always reflected on it back then about identity. And I think it's important for any team, no matter what they're doing. Uh, as important for any team as it is for important for any nation or any community of people to understand your identity as set against everybody else out there is is going to make you it's going to make you more cohesive it's going to drive you forward it's kind of going to give you a bit of motivation to to keep going to stick with it and so i think adopting scrum and calling ourselves scrum developers or scrummers or scrummy or whatever um gave us gave us a, a kind of hook to hang all of that on um you know to, to keep going to say actually it's part of who we are now and that yeah that that's something that that stands out across the years is is the importance in taking it in as part of your identity when you embark on something like this even if it's something more broad like you know calling yourselves angelists um it still kind of creates a pride i think within the team uh in terms of how you work you know, like everywhere I've ever been back when I was a project manager, you know, and, and we wanted to explore adopting Scrum, we were, we were not given the freedom of space to self-organize, right? There was too much pressure. There was too much, you know, the, 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 too much urgency to deliver, right? That they didn't want us to experiment with that. They, we could experiment with it later. Um, so it sounds like you had that, right? It sounds like you guys had that kind of autonomy. What do you think it was that caused what, – what's the name of the – well, I'm not going to ask the name. But uh, what was it that caused uh, uh, UK ferries you know, to, um, <laughs> to give you that, that trust yeah. and that space to ideate? The sponsor for well, – in fact, it was initially our PO for the, the work was our marketing director. And I'd worked for him before. I'd been working on the marketing side before I'd moved into IT. So we knew each other well. We were friends. And so I think it meant that we kind of got a, a little bit of freedom and, yeah, freedom and support, I suppose, to to do things the way that we were. There was trust there to, to go ahead and, and do things in the way that we needed to. Um, but they weren't. This wasn't a business where, you know, a big kind of, uh, in Britain we have Prince 2, I guess PM Bot, you know, big waterfall methodologies were were prevalent they weren't trying to run 
100 projects that way going through a kind of portfolio office or whatever it was a lot of stuff was done a lot of work was done as it is in many many companies you know just just do it um and so what we were adding to it really was was structure and predictability some what size that wouldn't have existed otherwise yeah sorry no, Brad. no that was good yeah i was just curious what size organization was this it's an organization of about 500 people um, in total, but a lot of that is the operation. So the head office functions, really, there are probably only 60 or so of us at that point. Um, so as I say, the team that, that we were when we started doing this, there was three of us um, when we started out. And it, it grew because we then sort of stood up a, a .NET team. Uh, we were setting up a second one um, at the time that, that things sort of closed down. So over the years, the thing kind of grew out and we had goodness knows how many desktop applications, websites, the company website, which had a kind of decent volume B2C, uh, level of B2C transactions going through uh, for people's ferry bookings. Um, and, and yeah, of course, the original kind of BI setup too was still there. So, um, so yeah, back then it, it was a, a pretty small effort. And, and I think to some degree that allows you to build relationships more easily in a place as well, because you can, you can kind of get together with folk and, and chat to them properly about why you're working the way you're working. It's not the sort of thing that trickles up through various committees and boards and then somebody gets a, a whiff of something and isn't happy. So I think it makes it a lot easier to do that in a smaller scale environment. But I think it's always good to start at grassroots anyway, you know, and actually to form, to, to do everything through these personal relationships rather than a, I think a big transform, but I haven't had so many experiences doing big transforms from the top. Anyway. That's really interesting because Drew and I were just talking about this on the last episode about how when you're a startup or you're a smaller company, it's a lot easier to experiment and to adopt some of these things and to be flexible and agile. And it's the whole reason why Lean Startup has the fervor behind it. It does. And all these major corporations are trying to figure out like, how do we have the safety and the sanctity of Amazon, but still have like that startup mentality and innovation. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of like um, my apartment building that I live in now. Um, we've got a parking problem where we don't have enough spots and there's a commercial space, two, two commercial spaces downstairs that are vacant and they're trying to open them up and they're going to take one of the parking floors and make it public parking for, for people who are shopping in those spaces. And, you know, it's, if you're building a building, right, much like if you're starting a startup, it's very easy for you to determine the parking structure, right? And and do a little bit of research and say, all right, this is how many floors we're going to need from a forecast perspective, you know, but um, you can't add floors. It's very difficult, like to add <laughs> more parking to an apartment building once the building's already built. And that actually, you know, also like correlates to the bridge that we were talking about last week, right? Um, the bridge uh, that, that goes over the Hudson just north of New York City, the uh, Mario Cuomo Bridge that was just uh, um, opened up, I think like maybe three years ago, that replaced the Tappan Zee Bridge. The way they built it was such that there's two roadways that are going on the bridge, but the structure is is architecturally um, stable enough for them to add an additional two more roadways as time goes on, you know? So... Um, yeah, it's it's hard to pivot like a decade or 
multi-decade company yeah. into uh, Scrum and Agile. Yeah, especially the older companies, right? The ones that have been around for 100 years or more. Those are the ones that usually have the hardest time changing. And they often mm-hmm. have things in place that somebody set up, probably for a good reason. But that person also probably is no longer there. And so everyone's just doing it oh, yeah. because it's what we've always done. And nobody really knows why. Yeah. I think that the the bigger and older the organization, the more difficult. But for some reason, we were really lucky because this company was one of the oldest still around. It was 160 oh, years wow. old. Um, its registration number was like four digits long when they're like seven digits these days. You know, it's just really, really old old business. But I guess because they hadn't sort of adopted these these big corporate, big heavyweight practices, that that's what gave us that that lucky streak to to be able to experiment and and again i think it's like we're teaching people all the time isn't it it's doing things at human scale mm-hmm. it's being almost parochial in how we work and, and being really local and and you know uh, friendly and face-to-face in everything you can do that in that smaller organization i think that's that's yeah it's worth that's, gold that's, you know sorry go ahead brad i was gonna say that's something that's also really fascinating to me you know we talk about culture it's like lightning in a bottle and a lot of the times our, at least from talking with other coaches, our like, this is the most mature environment I've been in, or this is how we got started, almost always does seem kind of like the perfect storm or lightning in a bottle where mm. we weren't necessarily always trying, or it doesn't necessarily make sense like how we got there, but we did. And I think that's the challenge with trying to copy other organizations too. Well, yeah, you're always trying to recreate that that moment in time again, aren't you? That situation you had. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and like to some degree, like the what worked well, and the, you know, the, like and being able to advance that into a new organization does work well, but it doesn't always work well. You know, uh, Marie and I were talking yesterday about her company is trying to figure out how to uh, create better titles for scrum masters. First of all. Um, they're very socially conscious and they don't want to use the word master anymore, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm starting to wrap my head around that idea. Like I, I get it. Um, I'm not fully there yet, but then I reflected on the idea of like, you know, we used to call it grooming and we don't call it grooming anymore. So, but, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so we were talking about like titles and there's a lot of constraints at her, at her company, right. That might not be at other companies. And um, so you know, first, what we did as an exercise was we tried to talk about it as if, you know, for any company. And then we tried to contrast it, you know, to another company or to her company. Um, you know, so like in talking about like getting started, right, getting started with technology teams, I find there's either two instances. Developers and engineers are either like eager and ready to go. And like, of course, absolutely, you know, put me on a team, you know, let's come up with a name and, you know, uh, user stories, story point estimation, no problem, let's do it. Or there's the other side of the coin, which is, uh, I find that engineers and developers have been burned so badly by um, Mm -hmm. senior leadership, not leaning in enough, giving terrible requirements, changing priorities all the time. And so they just build up these gigantic walls, right, mm. um, between uh, the business units and and the technology teams as a way to protect their their space, create some autonomy, and and maintain their focus. And have you guys like 
does that resonate well with you or like, is there a third, you know, pattern that you've seen? So I've only encountered this once and, and it was a very challenging experience for me. And it was that the team, they were a team of engineers, like actual engineers, not just software engineers. Um, I don't mean that's derogatory, but like, <laughs> that's what my dad would say. <laughs> um, like went to school, engineering school. And uh, they were used to having full autonomy. And so saying things like, well, let's prioritize our work based off of the business value and what the business views as valuable and letting them prioritize the work was micromanaging for them. And like making yeah. the work visible was also micromanaging for them. So I, wow. in, in those scenarios, because I've experienced that quite a bit, right? Um, what I find is often really helpful is because the thing is, if you were to put two options on the table, right? Like let's wave a magic wand and say, all right, um, I have the ability as the coach to wave a magic wand and create a scenario where the stakeholders project managers and other people upstream will behave in the way that you need in order for that, in order for you guys to get the work done. Would you still feel nervous about giving up your autonomy? And nine times out of 10, the answer to that question is, well, I don't believe that you can do that, you know? <laughs> um, and then I ask again, well, let's just, you know, just let's assume for a second that I can make that happen, which, you know, I can't, but, um, or not not overnight at least, but um, and they 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 say yeah, you know, like the reason why we want our autonomy is not because we specifically like need autonomy. It's that it's it's that we need to protect ourselves from from the chaos seeping into our our system and way of working. Um, I think it comes down to not feeling understood fundamentally, doesn't it? And and not feeling like there's that communicative connection there. And I think that's that to some degree is what we're for, particularly early on, you know, just creating the psychological safety, maintaining a space in which these folks can talk and making sure they do and that they communicate really strongly with one another. Cause that's the fear I think is, is folks saying, I don't think you get me. I don't think you understand what it takes to do what I do. And that's understandable, but something I found really useful in having a bit of a technical background is is being able to talk the talk, I suppose, and have those conversations with them in that same language that, um, particularly in kind of data warehousing and BI and that sort of stuff, because um, it's rarer, I think, to try and do agile with those sorts of that, that sort of work. So I've seen. Um, I, I think it, it does help then to be able to have conversations with people in their own languages, and I think that um, brings a, a stronger connection that lets you introduce more that lets you introduce more experimentation more agility if they're up for it than if we're just to sort of storm in in a suit with a clipboard demanding a time in motion study or whatever it is that they that folk might think is going to happen i think it's more reassuring well you know it's interesting you bring that up because like and this is the first time i'm putting it in this way but you know the reality is is that in in an early phase transformation, an early experimentation of Scrum at the team level. The team is the underdog to the program, right? And so, you know, you've got to protect your teams and you've got to advocate on their behalf, right? But then as that maturity grows and a product team starts to evolve, 
then product becomes the underdog to the business stakeholders. And um, and then you've got to advocate on behalf of them. But either way, like, you know, if we're wanting people to trust us to go along for a ride, even if it's a short experiment, like there's a give and take, right? That has to come with, with building trust. So you know, what can I do for you, right? And definitely, you know, your background as an engineer, right? Like, I've never walked in those shoes. Like the closest I've ever been was, uh, you know, HTML and CSS. And I am terrible when it comes to CSS. Um, I just break all the rules. And everyone is. <laughs> yesterday, when I was trying to do stuff on my WordPress site, when I was standing it up, I was on uh, W3C schools, like trying to figure out how to float something to the right. Um, but, um, but I try, right? Like, and, and I think that yeah. the way that a non technical agilist can try is to do more listening than speaking. Um. <laughs> yeah. For listeners, I just held up my cup, which I've shared multiple times, I've shared it on LinkedIn. And it's uh, CSS is awesome. Uh, but this, but it's outside the square, it's running out of the square. And if you've ever worked in CSS, you know that containers box don't always work how you expect. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I think you showed me that before. And this is the first time that I actually noticed the gag in, in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, it is interesting. Um, similarly, right, like I don't have a strong technical background in my mind. I've, I also predominantly know HTML and CSS. I've done design. I've experimented with other languages, PHP, JavaScript, but mostly front end type stuff. And I never worked in a team. I always worked on my own, which means I have terrible habits. Mm. Um, but just having kind of like an understanding of technology to my peers, they think I'm technical. Leadership tends to think I'm technical. Mm. And a lot of times it's enough <laughs> for developers to give me a little mm. bit of, of street cred, a little bit of respect. Entirely. I, I think I always think it's terrifying when leadership come to you then with the most technical questions and you're kind of stuck there with it thinking, I, I might have oversold this. Um, but but I do see it. It's funny you, you mentioned the, the working alone bit there, Brad. I think I see it as a bit of a spectrum between those two poles that you described, Drew, just now where they're kind of um, up for it or not basically you know they're up for the experiment or they're they're quite resistive i think it goes a little bit further than the quite resistive then maybe they are just a separate category to the lone wolves and that's what i always find i think i find most difficult is the folk who really say well this is great but i really just want to sit in a cupboard by myself and do my work leave me alone um it's there's something much easier about what we do when teams are kind of enjoying being together and we can create that to some degree but i think if people really really do want to kind of work on their own for various reasons it can make it a little bit more a little bit more challenging but yeah being able to to walk the talk um i think that that's the right word it, it's street cred isn't it absolutely yeah well it's instant street cred that you get because you know you've, yeah. you've logged into a console uh, you know <laughs> um <laughs> Like I like Ubuntu because it's got a GUI. Um, <laughs> uh, that's my Linux. But uh, yeah, um, you know, you were just talking about uh, my brain is fried. Um, resisting d developers who are resisting, right? And and I, I like two approaches there. There's one approach, um, you know, which is I'm just going to let that person continue 
because I know that there's going to be others who are willing to play the game. Mm-hmm. And so let's play the game with that person or with the, those people over here and let's let that other person observe, right? Maybe later on down the line, they might be more willing to lean in. But then the other approach I've taken is, is let's build a team around that person, right? Like those lone wolves mm-hmm. tend to be these giant wells of knowledge, right? They know where mm-hmm. all the tech debt is. They, you know, um, know the ins and outs of the architecture and, um, you know, let's, let's build you a team. And maybe at first that looks like, you know, let's get three people to work for you as opposed to with you. And then, you know, let's evolve that over time into a team. Mm-hmm. I mean, ideally it's, let's build a team, you know, with mm-hmm. you as opposed to for you, you know, but, um, yeah. yeah. The other thing is, is that like when I show up onto a transformation or an engagement, right. Um, and there's resistance from the engineers to a degree where I don't have enough champions who are willing to play the game, right? Like to me, the you know the evidence usually points towards product at that point, right? Like they don't want to play the game because you know either there's an absence of a product organization and there's still like project managers and BAs and um, stakeholders, right? Um, or maybe there's there are product owners, but maybe they're behaving more like project managers and BAs and whatnot, mm-hmm. right? And so. In, in those instances where, where I get um, put on the other side of the wall, I stay on the other side of the wall. All right, you know, keep working the way that you guys want to work, right? Like, um, and I focus on, on the health of the product organization. So if there isn't one, helping to establish one, right? If there is one, helping them to learn about feature writing and you know, better methods of, of, of writing stories and personas and things like that. Because now if I can improve the product organization, I can then go back to the engineers and developers and say, here's this thing I did for you. Is this, is this you know, piquing your curiosity at all? Like, is, it, is it helpful? There's a there's an immediate connection there anyway. I I think there's there's probably less need even to go back to them. I think it it would be affecting them at the time too. No, because you you know whilst you're doing that, you can and and maybe this this goes alongside having a background as a technical person if you're trying to make those connections with the engineers on a level. Um, you can be talking about craft. You can be talking about what do you want to make? What are you proud of making? What are you proud of most in what you've made? And and getting the product focus in in that way. You know, what do you love about it? Oh, you love that they're using this and they're, they're, they're raving about such and such a feature. And actually, yeah, I think you, you've got a terrific point about, about product being the key to it there. You can motivate a move or even a slight shift or a nudge that way. Um, and I think they, you know, they'll be drawn. Um, and it does go alongside, I suppose, then having that, that conversation as a technical person to technical person, I think that all helps. Then it's about craft then, isn't it? That's the word for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, once, once they start to show a little bit of interest, like the, the next steps that I usually start with, with them is to, you know, get them to start compiling their, their, their tech debt. Mm-hmm. Um, accounting for their tech debt, starting to put some metrics together that will be beneficial to them. You know that will help me to help them. You know, uh, and then the the big thing is trying to convince them to do a retrospective, if not every two weeks, at least you know 
once a month so I can get a list of their gripes and grievances, you know, and start to understand it better. Right. Mm. But, uh, you know, and I think that you, you, Sean, probably you're really good at that. You're probably really good at, at sliding into their DMs, so to speak, you know, and, and <laughs> getting them to just tell you where the bodies are buried. Like, <laughs> well, I, I've always noticed resistance amongst developers actually in quantifying their tech debt. I find that actually quite a challenge. Maybe it's me, but I've, I've not necessarily found yet a bunch of folk who really just are desperate to tell me about all the tech, tech debt that they've got and they're the ones that are motivated to work it. And in theory, that should be the case. It should always be the case. But I think to some degree, perhaps if they've started to make a move towards a product focus or at least more of a user focus, they're kind of motivated more for that that really cool stuff that the user wants. And don't. And, and to be honest, they don't want to open that can of worms and look inside. <laughs> maybe that's you know if it gets to the extent really then where they've, they've built something where they're they're not happy perhaps you haven't got architectural reviews or or something to allow them to keep up on the technical excellence front then quantifying the technical debt when it just feels like this mammoth um i think folk find difficult and so it really is then just a case of throwing something on the backlog that is the technical debt you just call it that and how can we divide this up? Could we give it a couple of different names, split it into a couple of things until you've got the dozens and dozens and maybe more of items that you need to list. But yeah, it was interesting to me when you talked about that as being a motivator for developers, because I've often found it quite a difficult start to a conversation to say, can we quantify this? Can we, can we actually just visualize what our technical debt looks like? Yeah. I think it takes psychological safety. I've definitely had those situations yeah, maybe- where, developers are like, you want me to tell you how crappy I did my job? And we're like, no, <laughs> like that's not necessarily what we're saying, right? But yeah. th- they definitely internalize it that way. And, you know, those are the, you know, we taught trust earlier. You know, psychological safety is, is something that's really hard to grow when it's not there. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I think it's it's the, one of the first seeds you plant, isn't it, is to, is to start to set a scene set an atmosphere around a team that whenever you're there whenever you're in the room this is what it's going to be like that 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 it's okay and that's why i think when i've i've spoken to teams about how they found their kind of early experiences having retrospectives you know as you were saying just now no matter what format it takes whether it's a, a monthly town hall where you can just all shout at your manager okay if that's what you want to do to start with let's do that let's just do something um and then start, you know, looking a little bit more inward or whether you're going to do, you know, hopefully we can introduce them to some classic formats and things to start with just to, for people to feel comfortable. Actually, I think, you know, they're, they're I'm thinking about this because I've got one to design for tomorrow or, or kind of tweak for tomorrow. You can be in this mindset where you're always wanting to give everybody something really fresh and energizing. And actually, sometimes I think they'd just like to have a little bit of comfort as well and say, Oh yeah, I remember that format, and I think that makes me think about these sorts of things. Have you? So yeah, we can we can give them these retrospectives. We can give them comfortable formats or brand new stuff, and get them thinking in all sorts of innovative ways. Um, but without setting psychological safety as a kind of uh, uh, undercurrent that, or a current that runs through it, um, then yeah, we're not going to get too far. But I think you know, with with the tech debt thing, the quantifying tech debt thing. Um, it happens with really mature folk too who feel perfectly comfortable. 
I think they're just really worried about what's under the hood. <laughs> and I think it really come, can come down to that in actually saying, okay, how are we going to eat this elephant? You know, grab your knife and fork. So the way I like to frame that conversation, right, is that the arc, well, so the product owner or product manager, depending on what kind of organization you're in, they are the product manager for the the, the valuable feature sets, right, that their customers are going to be putting their hands and levers on, right? They're usually not um, fluent in the language of architectural enablers, though, right? And so... I like to reframe either the dev lead or the um, architect as the product owner for platform stability and good design um, thinking for for yeah. architectural principles and things like that. So, you know, when I frame it that way, right? What a lot of times what I'm doing is I'll reach out to the architect if there is one, or a, um, a tech lead if there is one. And, you know, uh, you know, I'll let them know, like, you know, there's tech debt in your platform. You know that like developers are cutting corners, right? Wouldn't it be great for you to at least have that compiled somewhere? Maybe you, you're not ready to share it, right? Like, you know, what if at the end of every sprint cycle, the scrum master could solicit on your behalf for developers to make sure that they log any new tech debt that they may have observed or created at inadvertently? during the sprint and give that to you? Like, what would you do with that list? Like, how would you be able to better be a product owner to stability and, and uh, um, architecture, you know? Mm-hmm. And they, they usually get it, you know, after a few rounds of discussion on, in, in that way of working or talking. It's a really nice technique. I know I've, I've often spoken, particularly with scrum teams, about everybody having something to lead on. You know, there is not just the, hey, everyone follow the product owner. This is the new project manager way. This is the new line manager. This is, you know, just doing things in the old school way. Actually, the product owner is leading on this, but you are leading on that and I'll lead on, you know, agile stuff. But everybody's got something to lead on here. And within the developers, of course, each of you have got some specialisms too, no doubt. And I've never really thought of uh, calling it out as if you're, you're the, you're the product owner, you're the, the big advocate here for um, for your tech debt, for the, the engineering accidents, yeah. if there's a tech lead or somebody in the room. So I think that, that sounds really I'll powerful. take it a step further and I'll say the Scrum Master is the product owner for, for the way of working, right? So the Three Amigos model yeah. um, from Less, right? <laughs> like they're all product owners. The, the product is just different, right? Um, hmm. And with, you know, when I'm working with product owners or product managers, a, a lot of what I'm encouraging them to do is most of the time, like I'll hear them say things like, oh, you know, th- that's too technical for me. That's too engineering for me, you know, too architectural for me. I don't, I don't want to get involved in that. They'll, fi- they'll figure it out. And when, when I start to talk to them about why they should be looking at the CICD pipeline with the same level of emphasis as the uh, <coughs> value stream delivery, excuse me, they they don't trust that right away, you know. But over time, they start to get that right because, like, if you think about it, what good are these great features if the the roadway that they're running on, right? If the 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 foundation <laughs> that they're they're standing upon doesn't have the stability, right? Like, if it's 
platform is crashing or breaking or page load time is is low and the data is inaccurate and whatnot. It doesn't matter what kind of like heat maps or AI you put in place, right? Like uh, if, if the foundation is bad, the foundation is bad. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually had an architect who made us a separate Trello. So there was like the safety of this isn't just going straight into our backlog. And then anytime a, a developer was working and something annoyed them, you put a card on the Trello board. And then at the end of every sprint, as a group, they all voted. What is the thing that annoys us the most? And then that got made into a card and went into the backlog for the next sprint. I can't tell if that's uh, <laughs> if that's positive or negative. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose you've got a team who are feeling pretty cynical. Then it's it's a way to meet them where they are and just just get them to. I suppose that they can open up then, can't they? Yeah, I guess you can turn it around into a more positive way of looking at it over time. But it's great just to get them engaged with it. it right? I mean, it's friction points, right? They're identifying their friction points. What yeah. are our friction points? How can we eliminate yeah. them? Were you, Sean, on the uh, the vir- virtual summit session with uh, Kevin Callahan where he was talking about positive and negative emotional attractors? Yes, I was. I was. Yeah, last month. Yeah, I was f- came away from that fascinated. In fact, I messaged him this morning. I, I want to know more about it because I realized that like I, so p- we have positive and negative emotional attractors, right? It's, it's the, 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 um, like the energy I was talking about earlier, whether we're using positive or negative energy or catabolic and, and anabolic energy to either connect with one another, right? Like, so, you know, I can, let's say we're all scrum masters at an organization together. I can come into the scrum master's room or whatever it's called and uh, talk about the organization in, in a snarky way. And you guys will join in on that snark. Right. And, um, but we're bonding over this negative thing. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an attraction point. Or I could come in and I could talk about the things that are working really well and, and create that positive space for uh, our, our attraction point. And like, there's a place for both. Right. Um, but that, that's why I bring that up, Brad, is, is because like, you know, hearing that it's rooted in like this architect that's walking around with a virtual digital clipboard and saying, ah, you annoy me, kid, you know, <laughs> here's what you did that annoyed me and, and putting it in the backlog. And, you know, then everybody votes. It's kind of like, well, I don't want to be in the crosshairs. You know, I don't want to like, I'm okay being annoying, but I don't want to be the most annoying this week, you know? <laughs> No, no, it's the the things in the product and the system and the code. Like, oh, every time I use this method, right, there's this annoyance to it, like, or I always forget. So, like, it's the Got tech it. debt that annoys them. I thought you were talking about a person. Uh, so not like, yeah. It's not like a bullseye on somebody's face. They need to put the photo in the box. Yeah, I have heard a story of a, a place in my hometown where whoever broke the build, they were given a toilet seat. Oh, yeah as their award for breaking the build. And then whoever the next person was got the toilet seat. Uh, I, I think it takes a particular uh, a culture and relationship within a team to do something like that and not have it turn out to be super negative. Do you think that there's a kind of cultural aspect to this? I, I don't just mean kind of cultural within a team or within an organization, but but relies on where in the world we are. And I wonder what reflection you have on this, Drew, having worked in London. Because we will really rib each other in the UK a lot more readily, I think, than 
than in other parts of the world. I learned that. Yeah. When I was in, in London, um, th- there were a couple of guys on the team that just ribbed me. And it took me a, a long while to realize <laughs> that it wasn't because they were trying to tear me down. You know, mm. it was just culturally that was, and that's who taught me the, the, the phrase taking the piss. He used to say to me all the time, oh, I'm just taking the piss. <laughs> and, they yeah, were. Yeah. and they totally were, you know? Um, yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah. I come from a background yeah. with my friends where if we like you, we're mean to you. So yeah. like if, if I'm like super professional or polite, that actually means like, I don't trust you or <laughs> like, I don't feel like I have a strong relationship with you or I don't like you. That's possible too. But <laughs> Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about it from a standpoint of like, that's just, you know, I think who we are as boys becoming men, you know, but then I'm realizing women do that as well. There's um, a lot of studies that I've read on, on social pecking order and things like that. And uh, the Navy and in one of the last podcast episodes that we did definitely leveraged that kind of mindset as a way to keep the group strong. Um, so and speaking of which, um, I, it wasn't a toilet seat. I forget what it was now. But when we were doing maintenance in my shop in the military, uh, if you ordered the wrong part, right, then I, I forget what it was that we, we like. Sometimes you would like fat finger something by like a number, and you would just get a random thing. And oftentimes it was like the difference between like a size of a nut or something like that, or. Uh, um, a resistor or whatever, but every now and then you would get something really weird, like just something like really, really weird. Um, and, uh, so every time you ordered the wrong part, there was a trophy that we had that was kind of like a, a badge of shame that, that you you had to carry (laughs) with you for a while. So. Well, it shows that there must be good, uh, team bond there. There must be a bit of psychological safety for everyone to want to take it. Yeah not mind having the piss taken out. It's all in good fun. That that's that's all in good fun. I mean, there's yeah. definitely, you know, hazing in the military. That's not all in good fun, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's get back to the topic, right? Because what we said we wanted to talk about early on in this was, you know, so let's say you're an organization, right? You're roughly you've got, you know, a small amount of developers to a large amount of developers that are developing in a pool right now. Um maybe they're working on projects and uh, you want to get started with Scrum. Where would you guys start? So for me, I, I, I'm always minded to um, follow Henrik Knieberg's um, writing on Scrum Man. I really liked that when I read that a few years ago. He did a, an ebook, I think, that he published about the combination of Kanban and Scrum and uh, where to use the two, which to start with, etc. As so many teams end up doing, right? And uh, he was kind of saying, well, you know, if they've already got a process and actually, as I've experienced recently, or none, then you could always just visualize the work in progress, do a little to limit it and add some scrum stuff in after that. That works quite well because you can always visualize their flow if they're doing, excuse me, if they're doing something. Uh, that they've got a, a structure to how they work, a structure to how how they deliver within the team already. So you can expose that through a, a Kanban, you know, Kanban visualization and say, what's this like now that we can see it this way, uh, get teams starting to reflect on how, on how it works, really show it back to them. Um, but, and I, I worked with the team a, a 
a couple of years ago that was um, that was in this position, they were wanting to do Scrum. They were calling it Agile, but it was it was clearly Scrum that they were aiming for. But they were making a lot of the they were. You could see a lot of the traditional, the the classic anti patterns, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, missing retrospective out, perhaps no real clarity around product owner, those sorts of things. And so, actually, just strengthening that to start with for me, because that was clearly where their heart was and what they wanted to do, what they wanted to get right. Just helping them do that and feeling like that was a service to them was was great. And so, it, it's to some degree, I guess, I'm almost advocating the path of least resistance, which is never a bad thing um it's always nice to have an easy life isn't it but but it's the path of, path of least resistance for the team as well you know we don't want it to be hard and painful yes some change is going to be a bit difficult sometimes but if we can just do these little things here and there that are complementary to how we already are and how how we already work i think it makes everybody's lives a lot easier so yeah kicking off with saying you know no matter how you work let's visualize it i think is always good um, what about you, Brad? A good start. Yeah. I mean, there's several factors, and I think Sean touched on some of them, right? Like, what is the ask? I've definitely had people come in and just say, assess us to how we are operating, you know, in comparison to the Scrum Guide. Are we there yet? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but in general, um, I do like I do like that comment, right? Like the, the path of least resistance, or we mentioned earlier, uh, co-creation, we kind of touched on. And so... I believe the best way to get buy-in is co-creation and Esther Derby calls it like micro nudging as well. And, and so how can we solve pain points today? And let's not try to boil the ocean. Let's not try to force something on them. Um, most companies are not willing to be as disruptive as they think. And some of them are, are very transparent with it. And they, they don't think about the fact that adopting a new way of working is disruptive. And so it's like, well, you can be highly disruptive and get this over with quick, or you can be less disruptive and it'll take a longer time, but you're more likely to, to um, I can't think of the term, but the cost won't be as impactful, right, in the moment. And so, you know, for me, it's, it is more of meeting with the, the, the team, meeting with leadership, meeting with uh, stakeholders, whoever I can, and just saying, you know, what are the things that aren't working for you right now? And then giving them some ideas on how they might remedy those things, right? Or, or even just asking them, like, how do you think you would make this better? And if they don't have an idea, then it's really easy to say, well, I've seen other companies do it this way. Do you want to give that a go? Uh, but I'm also a huge fan. I am a huge fan of Kanban and I'm a huge fan of metrics. And that's usually what I use to guide people in kind of the direction I want is I'm like, hey, I just, I just put together these metrics for you. They're just numbers, but I just want to share them with you and see what you think. Uh, you know, I, 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 I agree with both of you guys hundred uh, percent, but th- th- there's, there's one distinction I want to make. And I think Brad, you you started to touch on it a little bit, right? Um, you know, for me, if somebody pulls out their um, Nintendo 64, right. And puts in golden eye, I'm going to grab a controller and I want to start playing, but you know, and much like with if somebody comes up to me and says, I want to implement Scrum, right? I'm going to want to, like, I am the kind of coach, right? I know right now I am the kind of coach that, that, that has to be very consciously aware of those moments where somebody says they want to do something because I, I, 
I've been burned so many times and, and to say burned, I've burned myself so many times by, you know, saying, all right, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. We're going to do this. And we're going to do that. Right. And so to me, I feel like I want to become and be more like the agile coach that in, in that circumstance where somebody says, we want to adopt Scrum. We want to try to figure out how to adopt Scrum. It's the first thing to do is why? What do you think you're going to get out of it? What problems do you feel that you're going to solve with this? Right. And, you know, most importantly, what does that mean to you? I want to adopt Scrum. Mm -hmm. Right. What, what does that mean to you? Right. Because I know what it means to me, but what does it mean to you? Right. And then, what ideas do you guys have like for how we might step into this place to try it? What are the areas that you think are good opportunities for us to to try to set up these experiments? Has anybody tried this before? Um, you know, have you been in an organization before where you've you've tried scrum? What was it about that organization that worked? Now these are like amazing, like powerful questions, right? Like that. I wish that I had the mental fortitude to when somebody pulls out Goldeneye to, you know, before I jump on the couch and grab a controller, right, to run to the restroom first because I know that halfway through the first game, I'm going to need to use the bathroom and I'm going to wind up losing or whatever. I don't know what the analogy is there. I lost it. But, um, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I don't want to be the kind of agile coach anymore that runs into the fire, right, um, to put it out with the water in my hand and the strategy for how we're going to put out the fire. I want to be the kind of agile coach that, that, um, you know, empowers everybody as best as we can to go into the fire together in the way that they come up with. Yeah. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of the Phoenix project. So in the Phoenix project, um, if you haven't read it, fantastic book, uh, and it, it's more, tends to be more in the DevOps realm, but DevOps is agile. And that's what we, we do. Uh, security in it is a barrier, right? Like they're the barrier to getting anything done. And there's kind of like this epiphany aha moment of like, well, security is important. So, so important, especially today. But how can you be an enabler and not a barrier? And I, I think we do that to ourselves as agilists, especially when it's like, hey, come perform this agile transformation. First of all, most companies don't ask for a transformation anymore, but, you know, are, are you being that impediment and that barrier with your rigidity to agile or are you empowering the organization to accomplish the things they need to accomplish with the agile knowledge you have? Well, it's, it's that old dogmatism versus pragmatism topic there, isn't it? You know, and, and I, I relate so much to what you're saying about somebody says to me we want to do agile right i'll be there right away <laughs> learned it the hard way a couple of years ago when i should have been saying why well what as do you think you're gonna get yeah as an independent coach right like i know that most companies aren't going to hire me for my like coaching right actual coaching right for me to sit down with them and ask them why do you want to do this right yeah like they just want me to do the thing to their team and so I'm constantly like worried in my engagements. Am I being too coachy, right? Because um, 
usually the stakeholders want you to do that thing to their teams. And, uh, and so I get, I get where you're coming from on that. And it's, it's something that I think we should maybe, you know, have another episode to talk about the balance between, you know, coaching, mentoring, and training, or sorry, yeah. uh, coaching, mentoring, training, and consulting. Definitely. I threw it in. I threw it in as, a, as an interview question for Scrum Masters about a week ago, and it was great to hear what came out of that, actually. You know, when you're moving between each, it's a really good topic. Yeah, um, yeah. Definitely. But, but yeah, the, the, the whole thing that, that I think I learned a couple of years ago from, from not saying, whoa, stop, why, what do you think you're going to get out of this, was also engaging leadership. And it comes up time and again, doesn't it, this, this idea what happens when leadership doesn't understand that it needs to change as much as the teams mm-hmm. that you're working with? Yeah. Um, and it got me into that trap. And yeah, we learn these things the hard way sometimes, but I guess we're human. I kind of want to study like like tarot card readers and fortune tellers a little bit because I, I feel like that skill set of, you know, somebody walks into a, a tarot parlor or whatever, the, the tarot card reader knows all of their tells, right? That then gives the tarot card reader the information they need in order to say, this is what's going on with you, right? Sort of and, cold reading. Yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, you know, because I feel like having that skill set, the subterfuge of the person walking in, not realizing that they know that the person's recently divorced because there's a tan line on their <laughs> ring line, finger yeah. or whatever it is, right? Um, like, you know, getting my clients to tell me what it is that they'd like to try and um, me then running with that with them in a way, like distracting from the, well, wait a minute, I, you're the expert here. You tell me what I should do, you know? Because again, like I've been burned, right? Like I've been, I've been burned. This is where I've been burned, right? I, I didn't burn myself, but I, I've been burned by when somebody, you know, says, "Well, we want you to tell me, we want you to tell us what to do," uh, and then I start telling them what to do, and they're like, "Well, we can't do any of that." And then three months later, it's like, "Well, it, this thing that you were selling us doesn't work," you know. Um, so I definitely want to become that coach that that. Mm-hmm. relies more on those powerful questions especially early on i think if we if we're meeting an organization that that at the time finds itself in a pretty um old school mindset though where they are thinking you know i pay you some money you come in you spend some time with my folks um and we do this big transformation program together and then we're done it's quite difficult initially isn't it to have that conversation about well it's not really going to work that way. It's going to be a bit more reactive. It's going to be a bit of an exploration and adventure together. And, you know, you can say stop when you like, and you can say carry on when you like, but it's the co-creation bit you were talking about earlier. Yeah. The co-creation um, piece. Um, and that, that's an awkward conversation, isn't it? Because by their nature, these organizations are a little more, I think the term was used <laughs> just now is old school, really. They're, mm-hmm. they're going to look thing, look at things in that more traditional way. And so that's where the expectation is set when we start out. Yeah. Deliver me a service. Come, come install Agile in my company. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think the, the, the you know, the, the place to start is the mindset of let's keep it simple, right? Mm-hmm. Let's not try to, um, you know, move mountains together. Um, 
So look, we've been we've been talking now for about an hour on this, right? Yep. Um so let's uh let's give some last thoughts and 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 wind this down because I think that we, you know, there's been a lot of great things that have been said and uh it's it's been interesting looking at it both from the coaching perspective, right? Like, what do you do if you're a coach and you're approaching an organization like this? Um, but let's wrap up a little bit from a standpoint. Let's say you're inside an organization like this, mm-hmm. right? So, Sean, what's your uh, what's your last licks advice for for somebody who's inside an organization that's thinking about adopting Scrum? Well, you know, I was just thinking about this this a moment ago as we were talking about a coach's perspective who's invited to come in from the outside. There is a very different experience if you're inside an organization advocating that change. And I guess it comes back to something I said earlier on, uh, I'd say this evening, you might say this afternoon, <laughs> um, where we said grassroots is where it's at. For me, it's you've got to be able to demonstrate how good this is. I think if you're inside an organization, you've got a hunger to do this then being able to show what it's worth in a brief experiment, as we always say, you know, give me, give me a week and I'll show you what that's like and give me another and I'll show you better. Um, or I'll show you what I learned. Then that's where it's at for me. I think rather than trying to yeah, boil the ocean, as, as someone said earlier on, you know, we just don't want to be biting off so much that we try and transform everything. Mm-hmm. We just want to show how this works right here. Do you like it? Is it good? Do you want to try it too? That for me is where it's at, I think. Awesome. Yeah. What about you, Brad? Yeah, uh, I would say similar lines, right? like understand your circle of influence. What can, what can I move now and, and what is not movable right now, right? Immovable. And, and understand your movables and immovables allow you to kind of narrow where you act. But then the next level, and, and this is where a lot of times I see uh, teams struggle is that like at the end of the day, we're a business, right? And, and what you're trying to sell, you're trying to sell, right? To your leadership, to your stakeholders, a business thing, right? This is why as a business, we should do this. Build a business case, build a business case for it and pitch it, right? I think we're, we're all kind of saying the same thing, which is, you know, get some people together, get two, three, four, five people together who, who see things the way that, you know, you see them, right. Who have a, a de- <coughs> desire to try something new and, and change a bit. Um, you know, I think the business case part of it, Brad, like I, I agree with that sentiment because you're going to need to figure out a way to communicate what it is that you're trying to do at some point to people who speak in that language, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and, and like, that's where my role has always been is to, you know, help developers and engineers recognize that the way that they communicate often falls on deaf ears, right. And try to help them to, to put together better language around that. So I think that's pretty, you know, we're, we're all saying the same thing. We're all on the same page. I think that's really good sound advice, right. I'm jealous that you got to be involved in such a successful grassroots, um, transformation sean i think that's super cool <laughs> i mean there may be some rose tinted glasses there too but it was pretty cool at the time definitely <laughs> yeah all right guys well this is great I, you know we had a you know a rough start last week when we tried to record it and now we're we're back at it and this was a great episode and uh we've already got another topic that we identified that maybe the three of us can come back together on so yeah, cool definitely. Uh, and it, 
again, you know, reach out to us if you're listening and you made it this far. Hello at agileforagilists.com. Tell us what you love. Tell us what you hated um, and give us some feedback. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. This episode. So what most people probably didn't realize, Drew's dead tired. I think I'm fighting a cold or something. And Sean's just got this lovely, lovely voice. So this has been like our ASMR edition, I think. So hopefully you're still awake. Hopefully you've hung with us. And this is our eighth episode that we've recorded, right? So early on, when we first started, we said, we're going to launch at eight. And then we kind of moved the goalpost back to say, we're going to launch at 10 so we could have a little bit of a buffer. But so this is a good milestone that we should celebrate. So uh, we've got- to be along for the milestone. Yeah, you're here for it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Sean. My pleasure. Thank you, Drew. Bye, guys. Cheers, guys.